Hello, I'm Tim Marlowe, Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts, and this event was part of the Festival of Ideas, an inspiring lineup of talks and debates with innovators from across the arts, brought to you from the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Enjoy the podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to the Royal Academy's Festival of Ideas, which is part of the RA's 250th anniversary celebrations which are unfolding throughout this year. And my name's Louisa Buck and I'm absolutely delighted to be talking this evening to Yenka Shonibare, MBE, RA, one of our most preeminent artists whose work explores colonialisation, colonialism, globalisation, issues of cultural identity and a great deal more in a multitude of media, which you will see because there'll be a slideshow just playing throughout our talks that gives you an idea of the enormous scope of his work. Well, it would take all night to run through Yinka's CV and I'm certainly not going to do that because we want to speak to him. But just, just quickly a few things. He was nominated for the Turner Prize in 2004 He's shown in major institutions and he's in really important collections in the UK and across the world. And in 2010, he put Nelson's Ship in a Bottle on the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square, one of my personal favourites on that that space. And he's currently got one of his wind sculptures in New York Central Park. So welcome, Yinka, welcome. And when, the, when the, the images will kick off in a minute, we'll be able to see that, you know, you work across so many media, painting, sculpture, installation, film, performance. But I'd like to start with what, from the very beginning, has become your trademark, almost like your logo, which is the so-called African fabric, yeah. the, um, which, of course, is in fact not African specifically. It's inspired by Indonesian batiks, was originally produced by the Dutch for the African market, that's already a kind of cultural hybrid. And right from the word go, this has been an image that you've used and a material that you've used. And we're going to talk a bit about the fact that you've subsequently been using the pattern rather than the fabric itself. But nonetheless, it's what you're associated with and the pattern still exists throughout your work. So could we just draw right back to the beginning and talk about why it is that you picked this particular, very distinctive material? And what was your kind of eureka moment when you decided you wanted to work with it? Yes, um... Well, I mean, I actually started off, um, I studied at Bamshaw School of Art, and I started off sort of doing life drawing, you know, initially. And then there was a kind of a moment in my second year, I, I started to encounter all the sort of identity politics. And Which is quite hardcore in those days, the identity politics. Yes, <laughs> yes, I mean, it was, you know, um, you know, you're talking about, you know, Barbara Kruger, Cindy Sherman, you know, I mean, it was all going on then. So, but then I was actually making heavily political work as well because I was looking at people like, you know, Terry Atkinson and all of those, you know, um, art and language, uh, all those people. And then one of my tutors said, well, you're of African origin, aren't you? Why aren't you producing authentic African art? Loaded, a loaded (laughs) thing to say. And then I thought, authentic? So what is authentic African art? You know, do English artists have to make work about Morris dancing or, <laughs> you know, I mean, what, what, what is that? You know, so then I went to Brixton Market uh, in search of my authenticity. 
<laughs> then, you know, I, I found, you know, the fabrics in Brixton Market and I, I started talking to them about the fabrics and I was told fabrics are Indonesian-influenced fabrics produced by the Dutch uh, for sales to the African market and then, you know, the fabric is now known as African textiles and, and so I thought that's very interesting. So I got really interested in the kind of the global trade aspect of it and the aspect of, um, you know, something representing something. Of course, I was sort of looking at my semiotics at the time. I was reading Roland Dart, as we were all doing. I was, you know, mythologies and, you know. Um, Semiotics was quite heavy and sort of deconstruction as well, you know. So all of this was happening in the context of Derrida and, 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 and all that. So that's the stuff I was reading. And um, so I thought this would be, you know, this is a good... A good signifier. It's a good, yeah, it's a good signifier. And that's kind of where, where it kind of all started. But you've continued, I mean, throughout. I think this is interesting, is that, you know, you've, you've continued to use it. It wasn't, I remember seeing the first time, I think it was at the, one of the New Contemporaries exhibitions way back when, when you had Double Dutch, I think it was on, on, the, on the, um, the, the little paintings... There were canvases covered yeah, in the yes. fabric. Some of them were painted on them, some of exactly. them not. There they were in sort of serial rows. Yes, but yeah, it's exactly. gone on to cover sculptures, the facade of the Burlington House during the refurbishments on a great big hoarding. You know, the, these, these fabrics have continued throughout to, to, to be very important to you. So what made you then continue to use them and continue to use this patterning? Well, I, I kind of thought, well, I want it to be... Um, to find a way to continue conversation with my audience. So in a way, I wanted my whole career to be like chapters in a book where you could actually have continuity and you could, you know, they'd see it and they'd know that, you know, you were still talking to them. Mm. And I felt that it was something that I could actually, it was a device I could use. And of course, I was, as a student, of course, I also came across the work of, um, you know, Daniel Buren and what Daniel Buren was actually doing. And then... Literally putting his mark on everything with those yes. stripes. Yes. Yeah, yes, no, exactly. So it kind of, you know, came from discovering that, I think there were situationists, so some of the, the artists and the way that they were sort of working, and I wanted to kind of do that. But I also didn't want to, I didn't want to bore myself by staying with the same, you know, I mean, I'd find it too monotonous if it took the same form each time. I wanted it to kind of evolve you know, and that, yeah. But also, they kind of deliciously subvert. And we will be seeing as we go through the Victorian dandies, the mannequins, often in period costume, Mr. and Mrs. Andrews from the Gainsborough painting. So you've got this sort of appropriation of art history, the Venus de Milo more recently, and, and various other pieces of classical sculpture, still covered in this wonderful, vivid colour. So you're, it's your way to appropriate, but also kind of claim and mess with, I think, these, these kind of icons of art history, or indeed history as well. Well, you see, what, what, what we have to note, I don't, talk, I don't usually talk about it very much, but my work comes from a place of discontent, and they're highly political pieces. Mm. But they're, they're not... I mean, you see, that's the struggle of, of somebody... I consider myself an estate, but I also consider myself dissatisfied. Mm. You know, and so how do you square the circle? I mean, can you actually make 
political work that is provocative and beautiful, but the work also deconstructs itself in the sense that there's a degree of ambiguity and ambivalence that I actually want because I, I straddle this thing of absolutely wanting to be part of the establishment but also wanting to protest. So, and I rather um, was rather worried when I, uh, you know, when I received my MBE and I, I was at, uh, I went to the palace. But in, in, in an odd way, I actually enjoyed the experience of being there. And I consider myself a rebel. So there's a kind of a constant um, push-pull. But you never thought about not accepting it? Because I know oh, lots no, of people no, no. in the I mean, art world, I... you know, spend nights chewing their pillows, wondering whether to accept their nomination or not. And yeah, you, but... you, however, have built it into your professional name. I, mean, I announced you as Yinka yeah, for an artist, seriously, because I'm that's how you I'm refusing it would yourself. be a sort of artist cliche, really. Yeah. Which I didn't really want to, you know, I didn't really want to do. And, you know, plus, you know, I liked receiving it, so why should I? <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. And also, I mean, the fact that you've actually built it in, it's in your Instagram feed, it's in, you know, it's Yinka Shonabara MBE. So you've got it as a, I mean, it's a kind of slightly barbed, it's this little kind of wry smile going on there, while secretly also quite loving going and looking at the Lanciers at the Buckingham Palace at the same time. <laughs> and same thing with the RA as well. You know, I mean, here we are in this great temple to tradition, and you messed rather deliciously, I thought, with the RA when you did the Royal Academy Family Album, when you clad the, the, the front of, of the, the, or the back, I should say, the, the Burlington, Burlington Gardens in this fabulous hoarding of all these kind of great and good of the RA, including yourself, and various, various sort of um, amazing photographs, this montage of all these bits of history, but with the, with, the, with the fabric pattern dribbling gorgeously down and kind of seeping into it. So it's a subversion as well as a kind of celebration, which seems to me to be kind of quite key. Well, yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. Do you want to sub- celebrate and subvert at the same time? I would think you do. I mean, I think, you know, there's a bit of that going on all the time because actually half the time I don't know myself. I mean, I don't know if I should really be celebrating this thing or if I should be, <laughs> you know, or if I should be shouting outside. Um, you know, I mean, we were talking about the, uh, the importance of money and power in the art world. And as an artist, you know, do you, do you, you know, do you not participate in capitalism? Or do you participate in capitalism in order to actually, you know, make bigger and better things? Or have, you know, have access, at least be able to run your studio? Mm. And, you know, and I think any serious thinking artist, you know, has to deal with that in a way. Because, you know, and I was actually also talking to you earlier about Christo. And the way... Who set up a corporation to, to manage... Yes, and, I'm, you know, it's incredibly impressive the way he actually manages the, you know, the money side of his studio. But, he said but, as a good Marxist, he was able to really research the way in which capitalism worked and then use it, which I really liked. Yes, no, and I think in a way I'd like to think, because there's a kind of a cliche that, uh, you know, artists of African origin or black artists are sort of constantly protesting or struggling or, or whatever. Yeah, but the representation's um, not great in the art market, let's be honest. I mean, women still make very low figures and black artists, artists of African origin, you know, it is a lower form of representation. Well, that is, that is true. But then if you, you can think recently to sort of, you know, uh, Mark Bradford, 
uh, you know, Jean-Michel Basquiat, oh, you yeah, know, yeah. the prize of the market. Pull out. Yeah. yeah, no, and I think also there's a kind of a, there's an interesting way in which actually the global south is now becoming part of the conversation. You've just come back from South Africa, haven't you? From yes. From your first show in Africa. Yes, and, I, and, I, and when I was there, you know, I saw that Wolfgang Tillmans had a show, you know, that's actually on there at the moment. And I think, you know, and, and I'm sure you know that, um, you know, the Chinese art world is far bigger than, you know, than it ever was. Mm. So there's a, there's a kind of a conversation, and also in curating and so on, that you can't actually ignore the South in the way that the South used to be ignored. But the art so, market, I mean, you and I both, you know, we, we began in the art world when it was such a different story, and the art market has just become this global and many economies all working together. Art's become this extraordinary commodity and contemporary art particularly. You know, I remember when art fairs were grubby little local events that nobody wanted to go to and no artist wanted to show an art fair booth. Now you're furious if you're not on it. I mean, how do you feel about that extraordinary explosion and change and trying to keep some sort of control while also trying to, you know, make a difference and communicate the things you want to communicate? I mean, if, if you're a serious artist, it's a, it's a complex, it's a complex thing because... You want your work to be out there, and you want people to see it, and you want to be able to make the work. So, the, you know, I don't actually... I don't, I'm not much bothered about the market. I don't think about it very much, because I, I actually think that the, the market should follow the artists, and artists shouldn't really follow the market, because mm. I think that you cannot be dictated to, if you're any kind of creative person, by a market. Because the market is, you know, it's an ephemeral thing. You know, it comes and go. Tomorrow they may decide they want somebody else. Yeah. You know, so you can't really focus on that. But I, but I think as an enabling thing, I think it's far better than it was in the sense that, you know, you, you do get... I mean, you know, galleries are able to actually uh, find ways to support commissions in a way that perhaps they, you know, they couldn't do uh, um, even you know, 20 years ago. It becomes quite complicated with the public and the private sector now, doesn't it? Because the two cross-dress so much, it's often quite hard to know what's a public institution. And private commercial galleries look almost more like public institutions and the institutions themselves. I mean, there's this sort of strange fluidity that's now emerged, which Oh, no, absolutely. And I, I was actually, I, I was just in Cape Town and I went to a, a very impressive foundation called the Novel Foundation there. And, you know, this is like a private, private museum in Cape Town, newly opened. And, you know, it's, it's a very imp- impressive space with a sculpture park and everything. So you have all these sort of private foundations. Often just to kind of conceal the fact their money might have been made in a slightly grubby fashion in the first place. But then twas ever thus, look at Mr Tate, I suppose. Well, I think I've learned by now not to ask too many questions. <laughs> yeah. But I also wanted to talk to you just about gorgeousness. You know, I mean, your work does carry a a political sting, but it also is unashamedly loving the colour, the exuberance, the voluptuousness of the, of the fabric, and just the sheer kind of aesthetic of it, which I think is really interesting, something that's gone right the way through, again, right from the beginning. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, excess is a form of protest, you know, and I think that the kind of lavishness, um, you know, there's a deliberate, because a lot of my work it's, it's, in a lot of my work, is about critique of the system, the critique of power. But the best way I find to actually 
critique the establishment is to use the tropes of the establishment so that, you know, if work is being very, if it's being deliberately vulgar or excessive, I mean, one of, you know, I really like Hogarth. Yeah. And I like the way that Hogarth, um, good, the way, the way Hogarth, you know, things like marriage a la mode, mm. and the, you know, the, the, the way he kind of poked fun at the aristocracy. But of course, I mean, he grew up in a debtor's prison himself. Yeah. And, and, you know, he was merciless with the way that he treated the aristocracy. And so, um, I mean, as it happens, actually, my, my series Diary of a Victorian Dandy I was, going to was actually influenced that. by Hogarth's Rake's Progress. He was the Rake. <laughs> well, yes. This yes, is putting uh, yourself in for the people with, who don't know. With the exception that, yourself. you know, there's no moralizing in, in, in my work, you know. I mean, I don't necessarily uh, take a very particular moral position in my work, you know, which is quite different from uh, from the work of Hogarth in that sense. But also but from the from the from the you know, the emergence of the kind of the black art movement in in the UK, particularly when you were at college, in yes. a way, just because you're that much younger than them, you came after them. In a way, the kind of polemic was the work was not not done, but that that discourse in a way had been well trodden. Well, yes, I mean Eddie Chambers. Um, Keith, uh, yeah, Keith Piper, uh, you know, they were really pushing for visibility. Mm. Uh, you know, there was so much discrimination in the art world then. It was uh, very difficult to be seen or heard. At all, yeah. Uh, yes, so, and they did that work. Um, I didn't feel I needed to do that because I felt they, they, they did that work. And what's more, you know, I started off as a painter and I, you know, I like colour, um, I enjoy my art, I, uh, and I want to produce, and also, you know, poetry, I mean, poetic things. Um, you know, I wanted to engage with uh, aesthetics, and I also wanted to engage uh, with the complexity of layers in my work. So I didn't feel that I necessarily wanted to engage with ideology directly or, or to produce something didactic. And uh, so that's kind of... How, and I also felt that, as an artist of African origin, I should be able to be abstract uh, in my expressions. You did say somewhere, why should all the white male artists have all the fun? In that, <laughs> well, in well, exactly, yeah. exactly. You know, I mean, you know, the white male artists shouldn't have the monopoly on aesthetics. Mm, you know, quite right. So, so um, that's where the uh, you know the work is coming from. Yeah, but also quite a lot of subversion. I mean, I'm thinking of you in the national. The National Gallery, with you know, replacing the, the the portraits of known slave owners with your work, and then putting that fabulous pair of mannequins in full African batik, Dutch wax batik period dress, shooting a pheasant with gouts of wonderful blood flying through the air that was made of fabric. With some of the trustees from the National Gallery actually refused to come to the opening. I mean, yes. you, know, you can still pack a bit of a subversive punch as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, no, I mean that, that's. Uh... You know, I mean, as it happened, actually, Ch Charles uh, was at the National Gallery. Charles Smith, who's not yeah. here for a period. And I think anyway. he, he actually had a hard time because of putting on that show because some of the trustees didn't approve of it. And um, uh, But I, you know, of course, I enjoyed the fact that they didn't want to come to the show. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I figure it's really hard to actually shock people these days, you know. Yeah. Um, but, yes, I mean, you know, I think that... The work is 
My work, I think, is deceptively comfortable. Mm, that's good. I'll, I'll hold on to that. <laughs> and actually, which leads us rather nicely on to public sculpture, where, you know, you've said you don't like public sculpture, but if someone doesn't like it, you've made quite a lot of it in very high-profile places. We're looking here at the wind sculpture. Actually, I'm going to talk, first of all, about the one that really put you on the kind of public sculpture um, radar big time was, of course, Nelson's Ship in the Bottle in Trafalgar Square, which, yeah. you know, you were one of, the, one of the rare artists, actually, to engage specifically with Nelson himself in Trafalgar Square. And, you know, I can see the thinking behind it from, from your work's point of view, but it would be nice for you just to talk a little about, you know, why you wanted to make that image. It has the victory with the batik cells in the bottle, but it's, it's about so much else as well. Tell, tell a bit about the thoughts about that. It's now owned by the, National, by the Maritime Museum, of course, in Greenwich. Yes. I think, you know, when I was invited to do the uh, project in Trafalgar Square, you know, it seemed obvious to me, actually, to want to engage with Nelson because you've got Nelson's column there. There he is, yeah. And in a way, I, I think Trafalgar Square was a kind of gift for me, really, because it's all, all this history of empire and all this. Yeah. You know, it's, all, it's all there in Trafalgar Square. And so... But, you know, public art is really difficult because how do you, you know, people have, you know, they're walking by, they've got maybe two seconds to engage with the work. In those two seconds, you have to do something. You know, you have to keep them. And, but then you have to do something that's kind of complex, make them think, but also playful. And when they're going to come back quite often, they might, they might well pass it every day on their way to work. So yes. you've got to yield something up, yeah. And so I wanted to, to do something that would be uh, magical, playful, and yet serious, you know. And I felt that, and I remembered sort of, you know, those ship in a bottle things, you know, as and a child. Anti-monumental too. Well, it, absolutely. I mean, I didn't want to do something monumental. I didn't want another white man standing on it, you know. I just, I just <laughs> want, you know, I wanted um, something that would be kind of playful and engaging. So that's why I chose HMS Victory. Uh, with the, and of course, you know, if, um, if Napoleon had won the Battle of Trafalgar, perhaps, you know, we'd be, I'd be speaking to you in French now. <laughs> you know, but, um, but, you know, it's the British identity and the British Empire. I mean, Nelson winning that battle it all off. was also yeah. responsible for Britain being able to kind of, you know, move around very easily and going to all these different places. So... And I'm a product of that. The, you know, I'm a product of that encounter between Britain and, and Nigeria. So, um, and so I wanted to somehow, I wanted the work to explore the history of London and the multiculturalism of London. And, um, and that's you know, what I did with that piece. And then with the glorious flag pieces, which, sorry, the, the, which, we've, been, which we've been seeing coming coming through you know that yeah the wind sculptures, the wind sculptures yes, yes the glorious yeah. wind sculptures with their just a delicious piece of fabric but enormous you know half the height of this half the height of this room and there they are the wind sculptures blowing in the wind i mean the most ultimately anti-monumental work but also incredibly complex to make incredibly large in stature so yeah. that's a really interesting kind of development from that it seems to well, me well i mean I, I think that i was actually trying to make the opposite of sculpture Mm-hmm. And I was actually wondering, I, I wanted to know, because obviously sculpture is kind of volume and it's, and it's made of you know, quite heavy materials. I wanted to make something out of that heavy material, but I wanted it to look light. 
And I also wanted to achieve the possibility of actually sculpting wind mm. through the fabric. So you can see the movement, but you can't see what's moving it. So it's a, there's a kind of a intangibility about the tangible, you know. So there's a contradiction all the time. There's a sort of a, um, you know, it's heavy, but it looks light. So that's, you know... It's also abstract, but incredibly figurative, I think. They just remind me of dancing figures, these sort of glorious will-o'-the-wisps. You know, there's a sense of, again, even when you're at your most abstract, even when you're producing images of people without heads, with globes like this, you're constantly, one's constantly as a viewer, projecting an image where there, where there might not be one. There's a sort of sense of playing with figuration and abstraction and bringing together different realities. I mean, I can see a bit of surrealism in the mix as well here, you know, this sort of sense of bringing together these unrelated realities. Yes, I mean, I think, you know, the important aspect of the work is the, the formal and the poetic is very important. You know, I mean, the form is, is absolutely important, you know. I think about that all the time. So, and I think that... Um, there's a sense of delight I want people to experience when they see that work. But behind that delight, there's also a degree of, you know, there are layers of history. And mm. if, you, if you think about all the different layers, then, you know, then darkness is also part of the underbelly of that delightful initial feeling that you get. And I think with these recent, more recent works that we're looking at now here, which are facsimiles of, of ruined, broken, classical fragments. Oh, now they've gone, but anyway, we've got post-colonial globe man, which is you, <laughs> to an extent. <laughs> but um, but this sense, of, this sense of, of working with the fragment and then reclaiming and, and working with things that we associate and playing with our associations, playing with what we, what we imagine to be and then filling in the gaps again. But tell, tell me a bit about, about these most recent works, which all seem to be relating to works that oh, missing parts, missing elements that you're then reclaiming again with this glorious patterning, but not covering with fabric, but covering with the pattern of the fabric? Um, I mean, a lot of my work, my work does tend to be inspired by what you might call uh, the zeitgeist, if you like. Uh, uh, so things are happening, there's a kind of a, uh, you know, there's something in the air that's sort of going on. Mm. And... We all know about the, the rise of the far right. Mm. And I also know that the uh, alt-right group in the United States were using classical sculptures as a way to represent the superiority of the Aryan race. And Time on a tradition, yeah. Yes, and I know that uh, the uh, classical sculptures were initially painted. I Luridly, mean, yeah. Yes, I mean, and there was a, a critic... Uh, an art historian called Johann Winkelmann, uh, who actually came up with the idea that classical sculptures were always white and the whites represented the superiority of the Aryan race. Yeah. And uh, um, so I chose then to reappropriate those uh, classical sculptures, uh, putting my patterns on that, and then changing the heads to uh, a globe so that the, the, the um, as we also know, of course, that. Uh, Roman sculpture was uh, influenced by Greek sculpture. So there's a sense in which actually we're constantly borrowing from each other. I mean, Picasso borrowed from Africa. Uh, we know that story. And so the essentialist uh, ideas projected onto those um, sculptures by the alt-right, 
uh, are totally kind of uh, misguided, if you like. So uh, that's where those, uh, the appropriation of those sculptures began. And reclaiming history on, on many different terms and many different levels. Yes. The, the globes, uh, are they, are, what, what, what world does the globe pick? Is it the contempt, does it depict in the globes on top of the sculptures? Is it, is it the contemporary world, our world now? Um, the way in which the no, I've work? done the contemporary world and I've also explored the uh, colonial era uh, globes as well in, in some of those. Oh, but the recent ones? Are, are yes, in some of the recent both ones. Both backwards yes. and forwards. Um, Tell me about the libraries. We've been seeing the libraries. I saw the British Library, which is many, many books covered in, in the fabric with, with names of, of Great Britons. Yes. Um, to, and then now you've made the American Library and, yeah. and the African Library. Tell yes. me about the thinking so about... So the libraries, um, I started that project at the, um, the festival in Brighton, the Arts Festival in Brighton. Um, at the time, of course, that was at uh, the time of Brexit, you know, when, when the debate, that was before the vote. But then I also observed a rise in, you know, xenophobia. Uh, and I felt that um, there are many, many British people, like Helen Mirren, uh, like the Queen, uh, whose families came from elsewhere mm -hmm. and who've made significant contributions to Britain. So the libraries are... Um, you know, a celebration of many generations of um, British people who have their origins elsewhere. And... Diaspora library, really. In a way. Well, yes. I mean, you know, Britain is a kind of a mongrel society. Absolutely. Um, people are from everywhere. So the fallacy of um, pure Englishness is not true. What about the American and the African libraries that you've done? Does the same... How, do you, how does that translate? So the American is uh, the first and second generation of people. Right. And the African library are people who thought, let me, <laughs> I need to, my throat is dry. Oh, yeah, come. So I'll, I'll just go. Excuse me. They're interrogating you. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Big as well. Because they're such fantastic installations. I mean, what, what I love is it is a sort of wraparound experience when you go into these rooms. I remember the one in Venice as well in, in, the, in, the, in the pavilion pavilion mm. there um, you know you walk in and there's, there's this sort of wonderful blocks of color but then you look closely and you start to read the names and then the whole other layers kick in one thinks about the well, stories it's um you know it's an immersive installation mm. and um you know but it's also you know it, it's a celebration of those people yeah yeah so um excuse me i just came from south africa yesterday you're, so you're off you're off I've the plane the practically <laughs> yeah and a dry, um, you know, airplane. Um, but anyway, yes. But going to South Africa too, that was your first show in Africa, wasn't it? Um, no, that's um, the first one in 15, 15 oh, years. Okay, okay. But um, the new work, were you, show, you were showing new work as well as, 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 as well as old work and new work, or were you showing all new work? Um, it's a combination of um, old work and new work. And I wish I'd been there to hear your conversation with William Kentridge. And in a way, you have a great deal in common, because I, I want to go on to talk about the, sort of the, the performative aspect of your work. I mean, you've made yeah. films, the wonderful the Masked Ball film, the film of Nelson's wife singing this sort of lament that he's away with Emma Hamilton and getting up yeah. to no good on the high seas. You know, film seems really important, and performance. And I'd like to talk a little, too, little bit to you about that, because it's a, another whole raft of your practice. Yes, I mean, the, you know, when I, I started 
of doing the uh, the tableaus, the photography, and then um, you know, and then I found that actually the performative aspect of the work, you know, I was kind of I don't actually like this idea of separating all the different art forms mm. because for me, you know, there's an idea that. I mean, you may be able to say the German, I can't actually say it, but, you know, the, this not. No, notion of the, you know, the total work of art. Oh, the Gesamtkunstwerk. Yes, <laughs> exactly, well done. Um, you know, so this notion of the total work of art yeah. is sort of central to my practice. So, um, I mean, even running, you know, I've run the project space for 10 years, I mean, we'll talk about yeah, that. I want to talk to you about we'll that. We'll talk bit. about that, that later. But, um, yeah, so film and the, you know, um, it's a kind of very important part of, of the practice. And, you know, I like watching um, kind of, I guess, art house films. Because I remember in the 80s, um, there were people like Derek Jarman, sure. um, you know, Peter Greenaway. Um, and one of my favorite films of his, actually, in terms of the excess of the cook, the thief, his wife. I love it. <laughs> you know, that scene of all the food on the table. And, well, it's, a, it's a human uh, um, feast, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yes. cannibalism thrown in just for good Yeah, well, exactly. You know, so... Um, and so I've always been interested in that. Yeah. And uh, gradually found a way to um, use it in my work. And the first film I actually made, I was in... I lived in Stockholm for about six months, and I made uh, that film was actually in my Turner Prize nomination, um, Unbalanced Mascara. Oh yes, yes. Where I recreated this kind of you know uh, ballroom scene, and and of course you know I like costumes and and I also love opera. Yeah. Uh, you know I like the excess, like you know, uh, um, I like all the tragedy. <laughs> you know, so so um, that's kind of where my I mean obviously. I tend to do expe- um, excessive films, so... Well, even putting yourself into the Victorian dandy, that was quite performative. I mean, OK, it was a photograph, it wasn't a moving image, but, you know, yes. it was very much a mise-en-scene with you were surrounded by all the gorgeous ladies or the servants or whatever. You know, it was, it was very much, you felt like part of... It was like, almost like a film still, really. Yes, no, exactly. So, so my film work really started from the tableaus, really, that I used to do. Yeah. And I did uh, the picture of Dorian Gray... Of course um, you did, yes, I Yeah, you know, um, years ago. And, of course, and I loved reading, you know, Oscar Wilde as well, you know. Um, yes, yeah, so that's kind of, um, you know, I mean, I've not done as many film works as I would like to do because they're quite, you know... But expensive complex and complicated, and, uh, yeah. and, and expensive, um, you know. But also, the one, I loved, I loved the, the film where you, where you had the, the, the La, La Traviata with... with with Nelson, it was in, I think it was in the Yorkshire Sculpture Park show. With, yeah, with, yeah, that's right. With, yeah, with, that's with right. Nelson's wife, who was this, all yeah. this wonderful black opera singer. And you said yes. you chose her not because she was black, because she had such a great voice. But it was a kind of yes. nice, nice coming together. Yes. And so it was another the dark side of Nelson, if you like, leaving his wife, you know, Emma Hamilton, and all that. And it was interesting that you gained many, many layers playing through. Yes, no, and I, you know, and I and I also enjoyed, you know, when I was doing that project, um, I enjoyed killing Nelson in in, in many different ways. <laughs> Well, he killed enough people, after all. <laughs> that's, that's very interesting. And also, also, of course, curating. I mean, you know, you're doing all these different activities. Um, you curated that great show, Teller's Man in the Age of, in the Age of Difference, 
the show of 46 artists, yes. well-known and not so well-known from, yes. from, the, from the diaspora. Um, I mean, just big, big names like David Hammonds or Kinder Wiley. Yeah. Um, international span, yourself as well, were in it, of course, Natch. And then Isaac Julian and, and then also Marlene Dumas and, and, and different people as well from all different aspects of, of the diaspora about I, representation. I, I was actually, I was, I was very gracious this time. I didn't put myself in yeah, that show. I thought you were in. No, I, just, <laughs> I, just, I remember talking to you at the opening, so I obviously just inserted you in, but that's very difficult for an artist to do. <laughs> some, some artists, quite a lot do put people in their own shows and put yeah. themselves in their own shows. But I mean, it was interesting that you mixed up the generations so much and it was very much about big names. I mean, those artists who were very much younger, Zach Ove, for example, yeah, yeah. and the young guy, I've forgotten his name, but we sat next to him at the dinner, the young guy from, from South London. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was yeah. really interesting. Why did you do that? What was, what was, what, why did you want to do that? And in a commercial gallery, it was interesting too, in Stephen Friedman Gallery. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I came across a lot of, uh, you know, young artists, um, you know, of African origin, um, who are doing great work, but not that well known. Mm. And I felt, and I've always supported young artists, you know, um, I've done that, you know, uh, for quite a long time. And I've been mentors to some of them. And I felt that I wanted to actually put them alongside some of the great names, you know. You know David like, Hammonds, Isaac Julian. Yes, you know, Marlene Duma, yeah. um, um, William Kentridge. Yeah. Uh, I, I felt that I wanted to do something cross-generational, but I also wanted a sense of discovery. So there's, a, there's an artist whose uh, parents were actually slaves, and he was working, in fact, he picked up art in his 80s. Was that Bill Trailer? Bill Trailer. Yeah. Bill Trailer. Wonderful. So I wanted the, the young artists to discover the such figures as well. And... Um, oh, he was working, know. he was working, you know, 100, nearly 100 years ago, wasn't he? Yes, Bill Trailer, so, you know? about 100 years and ago. And like a so-called outsider artist, too, so he hadn't had any... Yes, performance. exactly, and I mixed so-called outsider artists with, with um, so-called... You know, artists uh, who've been to art school. Art school, yeah. yeah. Um, but I wanted to do something deeper with that show. I think I, I wanted to really uh, think about visibility as a whole, and also, you know, women of African origin, uh, African American women, also. And I also wanted to look at the relationship between the African diaspora and artists actually who live on the continent in Africa. So I, I did include artists who live in Africa as well. And, in, and yeah, North um, Africa, from, as artists from Egypt. Yes, and, and North Africa as well. Um, Hassan Hajaj yeah. was, was in the show, Gada Amma. No, it was a glorious uh, mix. Amma, Marlene Juma, uh, of course, um, who's white South African. Yeah. My mum will forget, because she's such a big global sort of art star now that you know, that's very much her origin. Yeah. I mean, it was a very, very enjoyable uh, thing to do. Uh, but also I wanted it to be sort of, you know, meaningful um, as well. I mean, it seems like curating something you're doing more of. I mean, I've got the wonderful book, which is on sale in the bookshop, signed by Yinka, um, Criminal Ornamentation, the show that's... I love the title too, which again is so good because it's the subversion of your pattern. But, you know, you've got Bridget Riley, you've got all different kinds of, of patterning um, 
Cara Thuring. You've got, diff- I mean, I, I love the fact that you've mixed up generations, you've mixed up all these different kinds of modes of, of patterning and abstract, making abstract marks and pattern marks. And, and what's the thinking behind, behind this show, which is going to be opening, going across, it's going across um, the UK, isn't it? It's not going to be London, but it's going to be yes, all over. Yeah, it's going to be uh, in Yorkshire, it's going to be in Exeter, it's going to be... Uh, and it's, that's from the Arts Council collection. Uh, that project started off um, by reading an essay by Adolf Luz called uh, Ornament and Crime, mm. in which he uh, dismissed uh, ornamentation as uh, something done by um, degenerates and criminals. Well, I also um, remember decorative being a real insult about an artwork. If you said yes. something was decorative, it was like immediately lowbrow, not worth thinking about. No, I, no and... exactly. I mean, I was watching a documentary on um, Howard Hodgkin, and Howard Hodgkin was sort of really disgruntled and dissatisfied by the art world, and he felt that, you know, he was always dismissed as uh, being de- decorative. And I remember seeing that thinking, I want to be decorative. (laughs) (laughs) You know, know, so, and so this is my kind of reply to Adolf Luce's essay, uh, um, Ornament and Crime. And so in that show, I've included, um, you know, Vivian Westwood, Bridget Wiley, Alexander McQueen, uh, May Morris, the daughter of William Morris, uh, I've included William Morris in the show too. Um, you know, the list goes on. No, but it's glorious. It's a wonderful um, mix. I mean, and also, as you say, mixing up these things. I remember the story about Bridget Riley being so angry when her first major show opened at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and there were all these people turned up at the private view in kind of op art mini dresses modelled on her fabric. And of course, she was furious about this. But I think, you know, probably maybe you'd. Be rather more pleased. <laughs> oh no, I'm happy. No, I like you know. And I mean, the, the other sort of indication of, of, of your reaching out is what you touched on before. In your studio, you have a project space. You are you're going to be actually also doing an artist residency in Lagos as well. Yes, no, I'm um, building an artist residency space in, in Lagos, Nigeria. And 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 we'll, we'll um, just just to focus on your studio thing first, because when you, when you have this supper club where people can come and have a whole kind of evening devoted to a particular artist. I mean, I don't know many artists that do that, that throw, I don't think Anthony Gormley does, I don't think Anish Kapoor does, you know, throwing open their studio and having this kind of very hospitable, gregarious kind of exchange going on. Yes, I mean... I, why? <laughs> well, why? Because I actually, I wish I'd been around in the 19th century, all the salons and all that, yeah. you know. Um, and I wanted to do that. But I remember when I was, uh, when I acquired this space in East London, and I'd heard about Louise Bourgeois and what she did on, Sundays. on Sundays. Yeah. And she did it unfailingly every Sunday. You know, artists used to go to her. Um, but I felt that I couldn't be like Louise Bourgeois. I couldn't have every Sunday, you know, being... You know, it's quite a commitment, isn't um, it? You know, but I, I, I thought, okay, I'll do it my way. I'll do something else. So I, I gave my space to artists uh, for one month a residency and so but the model is actually very interesting because I run this space without money for about 10 years and the way I've managed to run this space without money or revenue funding uh, is by actually asking the artists to do their own curating so curate their own shows do their own marketing so I, I do absolutely nothing I just give them the key 
But you also you, uh, you also select who comes. I mean, you must get a well. No, yeah. So basically, it's an open it's an open call for proposals. Yeah. And the I select. I've only got one vote with the artists who showed in the space previously, and so we choose about six projects a year. Right. And it has to be a group show. I didn't want it to be any kind of ego trip because I want it to really be about the idea. Mm. So then and. It doesn't have to be visual arts. So I've done dance, music, theater, and I also have a theater company uh, in residence every year. Uh, they're an Afro-Caribbean theater company, but they, they come in November and they rehearse things. They then perform them and then they tour that. Um, and now they've formed themselves into you know, a, a proper company and they're called Tangle. Uh, I think they receive revenue funding yeah, now from the arts come up here, but, but So um, you provide a kind of a sort of crucible for creativity, really, where people can just do stuff. Yes, but and, also a platform for failure, you know. Um, it's yeah. very important because the market is so... Everything's so, so market-driven. Yeah. And, you know, we need... You know, we need to kind of support artists at a very early age, uh, early stage in their career to not to feel the pressure, you know, to... Just have space to experiment and and, and um, well, you can't even do it in art schools now because I mean each um, year of art school you're assessed as part of your end degree so you can't make lots of hideous mistakes in your first and second year and then get it all together at the end yes. you're being assessed and you haven't got the artist tutors so in a way you're helping to fill I mean one man band I know but helping to fill that gap I mean do you feel that do you feel concerned about what's happening in art education particularly in the UK where it's becoming so kind of corporate well no what's happening Art education is uh, catastrophic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's really, uh, yes, no, it, it's it's terrible actually because because I, I feel that people, you know, being involved in the arts does not necessarily mean that you want to be an artist, but it gives you a way of thinking. It it expands your horizon, and it's also about creativity. Yeah. And, leaving you know, the curriculum. I mean, completely. there's no e- economy that's not underpinned by creativity. Yeah. It's not possible to have an economy without creativity. Absolutely. So I don't actually understand why now, why the, the attitude to, art, you know, to the arts. I was very fortunate. I actually received the grants to go to art school. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I actually don't think that's possible now. No. And so, you know, I think we're going to be at a loss um, if we if we continue this, um, yeah. Now before I thing, before yeah. I throw the floor open to questions, we also have a slightly more cheerful note to end on, which is your creativity. What are you now working on? What's what what's you've come? You know, you just got off the plane from <laughs> South Africa, where you've been showing new work. But what's continuing in your in your in your practice? What are you, are you continuing to make the painted sculptural works? Well, there's some I'm new actually, things. Yeah, Can there, you give there us a little sneaky things, preview? There are new things lurking. Come, there are new things lurking in the creative. And community. I'm actually. I mean, I won't reveal too much about it. Oh, go on. Go except, on. except that <laughs> uh, I'm doing a project with the uh, Mapamundi. Oh, great. The Hereford Cathedral. Oh, how fascinating. Yes, and it's going to take a new form. Uh, but I Redraw won't, the world. I won't say more than that. I think it's a very good note to end on, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you very much, Jinka. That was a wonderful talk, and thank you for all being such a terrific audience. Many thanks. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, have a look at what else is coming up in our brand new lecture theatre at roy.ac forward slash what's on.